Now this is one of Paul's favorite ways of summarizing the gospel. So if you want to know what a succinct summary of the gospel is, just write in your margin right there. This is one of Paul's favorite ways of summarizing the gospel. Getting to the heart of it, the essence of it. This good news that the world's creator has fulfilled his once and for all promise to Abraham. We looked at that all through the spring. That the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. Abraham is the great hinge of the Bible. Where God promises to deal with evil in a particular way. And here is Paul's summary of that. This good news that the world's creator has fulfilled his once and for all promise to Abraham that he's going to rescue the entire universe. He's actually going to do it. He's going to deal with sin. This whole creation is broken and he's going to deal with it. The whole world is going to be healed from its brokenness. And, and, and the key is this. Jesus Christ is the climax of that long story. This long road to redemption. Now there's definitely more going on here than I've just mentioned. But when we turn to look at at the heart of it, that's what we're being told. Now, turn back a few pages to the left. Find the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel. This passage that I read. And here it focuses in on one particular part of the gospel. One particular component of this good news that God is healing the world. And that happens ultimately, the climax of it is is Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. All of this took place, talking about The birth of Jesus Christ. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Now here we see that at the heart of Christianity is Jesus. Who is actually God with us. That's that's right at the heart of it. That Jesus is something more than a teacher. He is actually, really God. But God taking on flesh and being with us. Now there's a fancy word for it that lies right close to our hearts here. Does anybody know what the word for this is? The incarnation. Incarnated, enfleshed, God coming into flesh, taking on flesh. It means that God took on a body. And when we linger with Matthew's description of the incarnation, there's so much to be seen and heard. Last year, I preached four sermons out of this part of the Bible. But for us this morning, I want to draw our attention to three issues. That Matthew is highlighting through his description of all the stuff swirling around the birth of Jesus. Number one, the incarnation means that when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, 
you are looking at God. Now, there are lots of versions of Jesus, but when you look at the Jesus in the Gospels, you're looking at God. Now, you can take Jesus and do lots of things with him, and you're no longer looking at God. But the Jesus described in the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, when you hear them read, when you look at this Jesus, you really are looking at the one and only creator. Now that's hard to wrap our minds around. How can this vast, enormous energy, this enormous force, this life source of the whole cosmos, how can this be? That's the audacious claim of Christmas. Now, it's mind-boggling. It is huge, right? But the claim here, when you look at Jesus, you are actually looking at God. Look back at verse 20. Notice what the angel told Joseph about the baby in Mary's womb. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, which makes a whole other kind of fear, right? (laughs) Don't be afraid that she's had an affair on you. She's got God in her womb, right? (laughs) Which produces a whole other issue, right? I think the irony there was Joseph just for a minute was okay. And then for another minute, he was in a different sort of pain altogether, right? (laughs) She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to raise the solution to sin, right? Don't fear, David. It's okay. I mean, Joseph, it's okay. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, in the context of the long story that we call the Bible, all of these phrases, from the Holy Spirit, save his people from their sins, fulfill what the Lord has spoken, Emmanuel, all of these phrases, you can add them up in your calculus to a certain thing, but in the logic of this narrative, they only add up to one thing. This is God. When you read a book, you have to read it according to its grain. Now, you can do all sorts of things with it, but if you don't want to do violence to the author, you take the author's intent. In other words, if you don't take the author's intent, you're being coercive and manipulative. You've turned the Bible into a block of clay to mold into your own image. But when we take the Bible at its own logic, there is an audacious claim going. I'm not trying to say that you have to believe it. I'm just saying that the grain of scripture here, all of those phrases add up. This is claiming a very remarkable thing. That in the womb of a woman, God himself has taken on flesh. Now that's tough. I mean, because behind that is the idea that Christianity is the truth and all other religions are not. That's tough. The religious founders of all the other major religions, they tend to say, I'm a prophet who's come to show you the way to God. But Christianity, it's unique in this respect. Christianity has a founder who says, I am God and I've come to find you. That's a different sort of claim. Now, with all respect to Gandhi, who was a remarkable force of God's work in our world, for whom we should all be grateful. But on this issue, he was utterly wrong. 
I'm not saying he's wrong about who God is. I believe that. But what I'm saying is when Gandhi said all major religions teach the same, he is doing violence to the text of all major religions. He's saying that I'm going to boil them down to say something they don't say. Now that is not tolerance. It's violence. It's hermeneutical violence. You see, there is a difference between the claims of religion. You cannot separate the ethics of a religion from its dogmatic claims. Yes, on one level, he's right. All the major religions do teach truth because all truth is God's truth. And a religion won't last if it doesn't have truth in it. Absolutely. It'll just fall to death on the, on, on the, on the shore of history because it won't work. But on a fundamental level, you can't separate out the ethic of Christianity from this unavoidable claim that at the center of it, its major figure is saying, I have not come to show you the way to God. I am God who's come to you. Now, on the one hand, if that's not true, if Jesus is not God, if that issue is wrong, then at its core, Christianity is deeply corrupted. It's fundamentally bad because it centers around a lie. Because the center of Christianity is not its ethic to love your neighbor. The center of Christianity is the one who told us to love our neighbor. It's that God himself took on flesh and told us that. Now, if if that's wrong, if that's a deception, then at its core, Christianity is blasphemous. But on the other hand, If this is true, if Jesus is indeed God, then Christianity is better than all the other religions. Because Christianity has God coming to us. Instead of saying we can find our way to him. There's a pastor in New York. His name is Tim Keller. And Mike Deaton sent out an article from the Wall Street Journal about this pastor this past week. And the journalist, she quotes This pastor in New York, Tim Keller, dealing with this very issue. He says this, Christianity will never be a good religion among many good religions. One that works for some and doesn't work for others. Because Christianity is about this particular issue. It claims that Jesus really, really is the only God. So Christianity, if that's true... Is superior. It's a superior way because it's God coming to us instead of us going to God. If God is showing us the way to Himself, then this is the best religion. But on the other end, Keller says if Christianity is wrong on this issue, it is a far, far inferior religion. Now, this is a difficult thought process for us here in America at this particular moment because the conventional wisdom of our society, our plausibility structure, claims is that claiming a superior position on an issue of religion is arrogance and closed-minded. See, so much of the common sense, and by the way, the key's in the term, right? It's the sense according to the common group. And according, so much of the common sense of our culture says that the stuff I'm saying sounds arrogant, and closed-minded. But we all know that have studied history. That there are many moments in history where the plausibility structure doesn't make this an arrogant claim. It just makes it a claim up for evaluation of being right or wrong. 
But in this particular moment in time, to talk in this kind of way, it feels to us, because we are all placed in our moment in history, it feels to us arrogant and close-minded. This arrogant elevation of an... Here's the other key. It feels to us arrogant because we've been convinced by our plausibility structure... That the stuff I'm saying is unverifiable opinion. And that's why it feels arrogant and closed-minded. See, because Kant came along and Kant told us, separate out religious knowledge from the kind of knowledge that can be verified. And so Kant wrote this treatise, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason. And so we've got this idea that religion's about beliefs which are softer than facts. And so to make an assumption about the superiority of a belief, you see, it's a whole train of logic that goes way back in the way our culture shapes our thought processes. And then there's more to it. We've also bought into a narrative that says the heart of violence in our world is fundamentalist beliefs. Now that's a, you know that listen history belongs to the narrators right the only reason i grew up believing indians were bad was because i grew up watching john wayne and other such westerns if the indians had won guess who would have been the brunt of all those movies the people writing history for us right now have conned us into seeing a selective view of the evidence that, that conservative religious fundamentalist beliefs equals violence. So according to this way of thinking, we should take a more humble, peaceable route. Now, this is so complex. Because the goal of peace is good. And tolerance is a good virtue. And inclusiveness. This is all good stuff that we should pursue. And there should be no doubt that one of the big reasons for some of the awful problems in our world is the issue of religious belief. But the radical and exclusive belief that Christianity reveals to us the one and only true God in Christ, this actually leads to peace and tolerance and being inclusive. You see, Christ calls each one of us to love the poor. This one who says, I am alone, to God, I am alone am God, looks at us and says, prefer the weak. Care for the poor. Empower women. Bring the races and classes together. Endanger your own life to heal the sick. Do the hard work, the sacrificial work of pursuing peace. The one who says he alone is the way tells us that is the way. And the church throughout history has warts, but it also has enormous virtues. The only country I've, I have any sense ever ended slavery without violence was England. Through the Herculean labors of devout Christians... That got a sense of the wickedness of slavery. 
And yes, we can point to England for its colonialistic vices, but that same colonialism then flexed its muscles the other way around and ended slavery without a war. Prison reform, women's suffrage, hospitals, all of this is rooted in Christianity. We've got to learn our history. We've got to learn to tell the story the way it is. The number of things that are happening out of the people in this room driven by the love of Christ in their hearts is astonishing in this community. The number of people in this room who are having people over to their house for Christmas dinner because the Bible says God sets the lonely in families, it's amazing. And you write that story one million times to tell the history of our world. I'm not saying there's not bad stuff. There is. But I am saying there's far more good stuff. Because when you keep reading the story, you find that right at the center of the audacious claim that Jesus is God is that same Jesus dying on the cross out of love for his enemies. So the very heart of our self-image as Christians is a sacrificial God. A God who sacrifices himself. So we've got this audacious claim to deep humility. See, it's more complex than just saying, if you believe you're right on this, then you're automatically arrogant. Because what are we claiming we're right on? We're claiming that the God of the universe at his heart is on the cross. Dying a sacrificial death for the world. So the very heart of our self-image is this meekness and this humility, this dying for them, this loving others. And when, you, when that issue, Christ on the cross, when it sinks into our heart of hearts, it is going to produce the most inclusive life possible. Flowing right out of the most exclusive claim. See, The illogic in our culture right now is that in order to be inclusive, you can't have an exclusive belief. But the reason that's illogical is because the claim that all religions are the same is is an exclusive belief. You're rising up, up, up over all the major cultures of the world, all the major religions of the world, all the major founders of the religions, and you're saying to all of them, I know better. That's a that's a claim. In other words, there is no exclusive less position to stand in. The truth is that God became weak. He loved and died for the people who opposed him, forgiving them. Take that into the center of our heart. And you've never seen an Amish Amish terrorist. And you'll never see a deeply Christian terrorist. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the living God. That's the first thing we need to hear from Matthew's account. The second thing, three issues I said. Remember, the first one is that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. The second one is that when we look at Jesus, we see the coming together of heaven and earth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but knit together in Mary's womb as a human. You see right there, coming together, God, the stuff of heaven... And humans, the stuff of earth. And this is an incredible affirmation of the physical world, of matter, of creation. 
When you realize that Christmas is about the incarnation, then you see that Christmas is about the redemption of God's good world. His wonderful creation so that it can be the glorious thing it was made to be. When you look in the manger scenes that are spread throughout our society this time of the year, you're seeing the creator loves the creation. (laughs) Think about the, the root logic of the manger scene, right? God in the muck, the straw, the blood, the flesh, the tissue, the physical stuff of this world, it matters to the God who made it. The enfleshment of God. This reveals to us the glorious purpose of the whole of creation. This is huge. I've made the point on numerous occasions, but we've got to keep hearing it. It's something I've learned from Wendell Berry. It's something that flows right out of Scripture. We resist Christianity. We resist the incarnation when we see land... Solely in terms of profitability for the agri-industrial corporations or other business ventures. And again, I've said this on multiple occasions, but it's so important. Many conservative American Christians love to attach the word, the, the adjective holy to the noun land when they're talking about Israel. But are then blinded. By the holiness of the land they walk on. Wendell Berry once told a story. I've said it before. But again and again and again we need to hear it. About the artist Harlan Hubbard. Asked by a local church to paint the Jordan River. A river in Israel. It's a big part of the story of the Bible. Hubbard obliged and he painted the local river of the church. The Ohio River. Reflecting on this situation, right? You commission. Did any of you grow up in a church, by the way, with a painting in the baptistry of the Jordan River? I grew up in one of those. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Okay. He did that. And then he painted their local river, right? So you have the art opening, right? And there it is. Reflecting on this, Wendell Berry said, If those of us who live in the watershed of the Ohio River saw it like Hubbard saw it, would it be so shamefully polluted? Would we be strip mining its headwaters? In other words, the holy land did not become holy by divine prejudice in its favor. It's holy because it's a part of a world made by a holy God. And as Christians, we've got to care for and celebrate nature. Because first of all, the one and only true God whom we worship made nature. Right? So I make a thing, I give it to somebody, my own children come along and smash it to the ground. Right? That's not an act of love for their father. Nature is not only something God made, which alone demands that we care for it, but get this, it is a part of God's restoration project. So that also demands that we care for it. We've got to love this world because this is God's world. And it's part of what Jesus died for. And it will be healed. And only people who forget that can look at a manger scene and spiritualize it away from a physical reality. This is a profound issue. That God is in flesh. This world will be healed. It will become what God intended from the beginning. Now look, that doesn't mean therefore just mess it up. Because you're going to be healed. 
You're going to become what God intended for the beginning. So should we just kill you? The reason you matter is because you were made by somebody who is holy and cares for you. And you will last on in, 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 in a profound way. And in the same manner of logic, this world our God created matters. It will become what it was intended from the beginning. We are not merely passing through this world. We are shaping the building blocks of eternity. The resurrected body of Jesus was the first bit of material order to be renewed and restored. And it's, and it's a big sign to us that God is going to resurrect this world. It's a divine pledge that the rest of creation will be renewed and restored. If we're going to take Christianity on its own terms, if we're going to let the clean sea breeze of the earliest understanding of Jesus blow through our lives, then we've got to take both sides of the coin. The exclusive claims of Jesus as being the true God in flesh and the world-affirming claim of Jesus as the true God in the flesh. We've got to take both God and flesh. Christology and ecology. The nature of creation and the nature of Christ. You cannot separate them. This is at the heart of the Christmas story. So incarnation. Church of the incarnation. Are we going to live up to this? How's our land? How's the valley doing? How are we cooperating with the land? How are our companies and our businesses treating the land? How are our farmers treating the land? Families, individuals, how are you treating the land? As we continue on this glorious journey, remember the church of the incarnation began with the vision of being a small, healthy church deeply rooted in downtown Harrisonburg that plants other small, healthy churches deeply rooted in their communities and neighborhoods throughout the valley. And our dream is of a network of healthy parish churches working together for a holistic renewal in the valley so that the whole valley can experience The good and gracious reign of a good and gracious king. All right, these issues we focus on when we read about the soon coming birth of Jesus. First, that when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. And second, when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God's deep affirmation of his creation. And the third lesson for us to hear from Matthew's account of the soon coming birth of Jesus is that the incarnation means we are doomed if God doesn't intervene. Look at our, the first verse of our gospel passage, Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now look at the last verse of our passage, verse 25. Look at the last phrase of that verse. And he called his name Jesus. Now go back to verse 25. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus, this is just the Greek name of a Hebrew name. Does anybody know the Hebrew name? Joshua. Joshua. And Joshua was a character in this big story. And Joshua, the name means God who saves. So give this baby this name from our heritage, 
that says God who saves. Look again at verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save, but it doesn't stop there, his people from their sins. Now this is hard. We need to be saved from our sins. At the heart of Christmas is that claim. We need to be saved from our sins. Sometimes when we think about wrongs done and forgiveness, we put the emphasis on forgetting. Right? I've had this conversation in our family several times this weekend. Sometimes when people get on your nerves, when they do things that are wrong, sometimes the best move is just to get over it. Suck it up. In our house sometimes, love covers a multitude of sins. Just cover over it in love. <clears throat> Learning that in a family of seven is an important lesson. But that's not all there is to the story of right and wrong and good and bad and sin. You see, sin doesn't just go away when we forget about it. Just because I cover over your sin against me in love or vice versa doesn't mean it's gone. Sometimes that's what's necessary for the relationship to move on. But that's not the deepest reality. Sin sticks to you. Your own dark thoughts and your own desires that are bad, they stick to you. Your actions, your bad behavior, it does not go away when you forget about it. Right? I can, I can stop paying on a debt and by some lucky chance of psychology, forget about that. But the debt is still there, right? Your selfishness, your anger, your greed, your, your sin is a reality. And a very real part of that reality is that you and me, we are stained by our sin. And this stain plays out in two ways. We are stained in the sense that we bear guilt for our sins. There is such a thing as guilt. One of the deep problems with the justice system in America is that it doesn't really deal with guilt. And that has deep psychological results on people who get jammed into our justice system. Guilt is real. Our status before God and others in the world is that of guilty. Now, I'm not talking about if you feel guilty. I'm talking about a real reality of guilt. It's this real status we carry and we're plagued by this terrible status and it does produce the feeling of shame. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, but, but the real guilt is there and sometimes it plays out with making us feel shame. And the big primary, most terrible result of this guilt is not shame. Shame is not the fundamental problem. The guilt behind it is. The fundamental problem is that we are guilty. And this guiltiness over our sin, it exiles us from intimacy with our creator, the source of life. And we are in absolute need of dealing with the guilt. And the second way sin stains us, in addition to our guilty status. You see, on this first issue, sometimes we make the move in our culture of, of, of thinking guilt and shame are the same. And thinking feeling bad is the root issue. For the mass murderer who's psychotic, the fact that he doesn't, is psychotic the right thing? You don't feel bad about what you've done wrong? Is that, about pick the right? The real issue, the most fundamental issue is that he doesn't feel bad. It's that he killed people. 
Now that he doesn't feel bad, that's a problem. But guilt, we've got to recover a notion of guilt in our culture. Secondly, the second way sin stains us, in addition to our guilty status and our even experience of feeling that guilt, the second consequence of our sin is that we're corrupted. Sin not only makes us guilty, it corrupts us. You know this. You know that when you do bad things, you become a bad person. Very few people in this room have not ever seen that a whole series of choices shaped and bent their nature until they got to a place doing things that they never would have approved of. Sin corrupts us. We're corrupted, we're broken, and we spread this corruption. It's, it's contagious. We spread it like Ebola. It, sin has turned our power for good into a corrupting influence. Not only is sin present in the chambers of my heart, it's present in the structures of the world. Not only are our bodies broken and our relationships broken, but in our rebellion against our creator and our king, the whole world has been plunged into the darkness of sin. Cities are broken. Art is broken. Institutions are broken. Universities are broken. Families are broken. Business is broken. Government is broken. Nature itself has been broken by this contagion we've spread. The entire world, the Bible says, groans under our selfishness and violence and injustice. The entire cosmos has become a broken place. The entire created order, the whole cosmos, is in need of salvation. Now go back to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. God became human in order to save us from our sins. Shame is not the root problem. It's guilt. It's our sin. Is shame a problem? Absolutely. Should we learn how to deal with it? Absolutely. But the Christian claim is not that. It's that the heart issue is we really do have guilt in our life. And it violates our relationship with creator and with one another and so forth and so on. Now, Church of the Incarnation. Why are we planting a church in Elkton? We are not only doing this so that our brothers and sisters who live in Elkton can worship one another. Not have to make the long drive to Harrisonburg. We are doing this so that they can be a community of Christians who are proclaiming with their lives in their very place and with their words and with their, their actions, they are proclaiming forgiveness. Not merely a psychological trick of forgiveness, but ultimate forgiveness by the Creator. The message of the church is forgiveness of sins through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, this glorious, impossible thing we are propelling, this thing we're preparing to celebrate on Thursday, embedded in all of this is God taking on flesh, becoming one of us. And embedded in that is a very particular analysis of what is wrong with the world and what the solution is. And the solution is God Himself. Taking on flesh, modeling the way, but not stopping there. Paying for our guilt through his own bloody death. We are guilty people, guilty of sin. But in Christ we're offered salvation from that guilt, forgiveness of sin. In Christ we have the opportunity to be restored to the way God made us to be. 
So the incarnation is God's initiative on display. God's radical commitment to us to save us and to be with us. Now to wrap all of this up, I want you to notice one last thing very quickly. Notice in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, it's told from the perspective of Joseph. Don't miss over that. Don't miss that. Can you imagine what Joseph is going through in all of this? Look, they knew where babies came from. It's chronological arrogance to think that we have a sense of biology. They didn't. An agrarian society is not confused. The mythology of Rome, they knew was a mythology. Everybody knew that it was a mythology. Nowhere in the Bible is this claimed as a myth in that way. Can you imagine what he's going through? It was just as hard for him to compute it as it is for you and me and all of our sophisticated scientific knowledge. Because it doesn't take a lot of sophisticated knowledge to struggle with the fact that this woman is pregnant and she's still a virgin. That doesn't require modern biological knowledge to make that hard. And what is the response required of Joseph? It was enormous. But really it's not much crazier than the response required of all of us who would follow Jesus. For us and for Joseph, the response is very serious. Will you take God for who he is at his word? After all, he is the creator who is responsible for you being a part of his creation. So in the three and a half days that remain before Christmas, take time. Prepare yourself. Open your heart, the deepest part of your life, to receiving the creator revealed in Christ. Humble yourself by believing. The biggest barrier to belief is not doubt. It is humility. The biggest barrier to belief is not skepticism, it is not science, it is pride. Will you humble yourself? Now, I'm not saying that science and doubt are not important. They are, you've been around. I've, I talk about that stuff an awful lot. Will you humble yourself and repent? And if you do, he will be your shalom. He will be your peace. Open your heart to Christ. And, the, and peace will come into your heart. Let's pray.